In Psalm 24, King David asked a very important question. One that every single one of us, whether you are here in service or whether you are at home watching, should be asking. Each of us should desperately desire the knowledge of the answer to this question that each of us ought to be asking, which is this in Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The idea here, who can participate in the worship of the most wonderful of beings, our most holy, exalted, and magnificent God? When all is said and done, who is permitted to stand in his presence? Who is fit to enter into his holy place and ultimately receive the blessing of Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, which is sight of him? Wonderfully enough, David answers this question in the very next verse of Psalm 24, saying this, He who has, or she, who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So who is permitted to enter into and ultimately see the Lord in his holy place? It is the one with clean hands and a pure heart. And if that is the answer to the question, then the next and most obvious thing to do is ask another question, which is how? How can a person ultimately be pure in heart? See, King David understood, as should we, that our ultimate aim, that the great goal of our lives, that the wonderful joy that we all seek will be given ultimately to the pure in heart. As Jesus said in this morning's beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you see the blessing that is connected to purity of heart in the words of Jesus here? It is the pinnacle of all blessing. They shall see God. Purity of heart is a requirement for anyone if they would see God. Which is why James in the New Testament continues. It's like he read Psalm 24 while he was writing James writing his letter because he called for the very same thing in James chapter 4 verse 8 when he said to the people that he was writing to he said cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your heart you double-minded you see that who is the one that's able to enter into the presence of the Lord the one with clean hands and pure heart and here is James in the New Testament telling the ones he is writing to cleanse your hands purify your heart because the requirements are still the same However, there is a terrible problem that affects all of us. A problem that is summed up well by the prophet Jeremiah in his book, in chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, when he wrote these words to Israel, which are true for every single one of us, saying, the heart, your heart, my heart, is desperately deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? <clears throat> I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So did you catch it? We have a tendency, right, to assume positive motivations and general purity of heart. That's how culture assumes and thinks about the heart. We tend to think that our hearts are, for the most part, good and decent. And we get to this place because we are masters at comparing ourselves with the wrong thing. We are masters at choosing someone who is way worse than we are and comparing ourselves to them. And when we do that, every single one of us, when we choose to compare ourselves to another person, can come out of that justification or, that, or come out of that comparison smelling like roses, can't we? However, the Lord isn't confused 
The Lord isn't tricked by our foolish attempts to justify ourselves. The state of our heart isn't authenticated by our comparisons with other people, but actually the state of our heart is revealed when we compare ourselves against what we ought to compare ourselves against, which is the perfect standard of the Lord. That is what each and every one of us must be comparing ourselves to. Not to each other, but to the perfect standard of the Lord. And when His holiness and His revelation and His perfection is the standard, Jeremiah comes to a startling and disturbing conclusion about the human heart. That it is desperately deceitful, and look at the words again, desperately deceitful, above all Things. You see that? Above all things. Now, some of us might bristle at this idea, right? At this contention that the human heart is desperately deceitful and wicked. So let me just put it to the test, okay? Let's prove it a little bit here. I want you to imagine <clears throat> that tomorrow somebody invented a machine. Some sort of machine that could be attached to your head and to your heart. And that machine could read, reveal, and plumb the depths of your heart and the contents of your heart, your thoughts, your passions, your lusts, could all be read, revealed, and displayed for everyone to see on the screen behind me. All your thoughts all your desires, who would be the first to sign up? Good. There's 100% of us here that would refuse to sign up. And I'm sure that if we did this test with everybody outside of here as well, they would all refuse to sign up because we all know deep down that we can try to fool ourselves into thinking that our hearts are generally good, but we know, right? We know and when God searches the human heart, this is what he sees. It is primarily sick, primarily deceitful. It is beyond our own understanding. Our own hearts are beyond our understanding. It is our own hearts that deceive us. And if the Lord were simply to search our hearts and give to us what we deserve when he looks into that heart, all of us, Every single one of us would be the just recipient of his holy, righteous wrath. And so how did we get here? How did we get to this place? Because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible thing, isn't it, to be in this place? How did we get into this seemingly hopeless situation of a desperately deceitful, sick, and wicked heart above all things? And when we, look in, when we look at God's word, we see that it wasn't always this way. When we go to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we see something different. If you just flip over to Genesis 1, <clears throat> we see in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he spoke all things into existence. He spoke the sun and he spoke the moon and the stars and the vegetation and all of the animals into existence. And finally, he, he formed from the dust of the earth his crowning achievement, the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. As God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, he created Adam in his own image as one who could reflect the image of God upon the earth. Adam created in the image of God before the fall was one who had a heart that was singularly focused on and singularly thankful to the Lord. The God who had provided all things for him out of his generous abundance. Because that's who our God is. He is generous and abundant. And the Lord also created Eve 
as a companion, as a helper fit for Adam. And together they lived in harmony. They lived in paradise. And the Lord dwelt among them. The Lord walked among them in the cool of the garden. They had it so good. No stress, no anxiety, no lack. And best of all, they were blessed with direct contact and direct communication with the Lord who provided for them everything they needed saying to Adam the Lord said to Adam in Genesis 2 16 and 17 you may surely or depending on what translation you have it could also say freely you may surely or freely eat of every tree in the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die And so the Lord, in his abundant goodness, told Adam, he said, freely, freely enjoy every tree in the garden but one. The Lord gave generously to Adam all the trees in the garden but one, telling him to eat, telling him to enjoy, telling him to delight himself in God's good and ample supply. The focus here being on the generosity of the Lord, the abundant goodness of the Lord in giving to his people everything that they need. Now, these words were spoken to Adam before the creation of Eve, and so it was Adam's duty to then relay this wonderful news to her Eve, look at the trees. We can eat of all of them. We can enjoy all of them, except that one in the middle of the garden. We aren't told when Adam told her. We aren't told how he told her. But it seems as though Eve had a basic understanding of the information. And she enjoyed the Lord's provision as well. And at this point, both Adam and Eve possessed hearts that were singularly focused on the Lord. They possessed hearts that were looking to the Lord with undivided attention, with undivided loyalty, and filled with gratitude. But then something happened. The serpent. The serpent. The one that we now know, thanks to the Apostle John, as Satan, according to Revelation 12, verse 9, where we read that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, that serpent, (coughs) Satan, the hater of both God and mankind, was more crafty than any of the Lord's other creations. And this serpent sought to disrupt the peace that existed between God and man. This serpent aimed at disturbing Adam and Eve's singular focus on the Lord. Satan's ambition was that of robbing God of his honor and robbing humanity of its deepest and greatest joy. And how might he accomplish this goal? By dividing the heart between God and something else, anything else. And so on this day, the serpent slinked into the garden and marshaled his deceptive energies and activities against the woman, asking her in Genesis 3.1, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the serpent is extremely strategic in everything that he says to Eve in this exchange. So I want you to just notice something in Genesis chapter 1. If you look down the verses of Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating the world, the title that is given to God in this chapter is God. You see that? God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3, and God said. In verse 6, and God said. In verse 8, and God called. And God said. And God said. And God called. This is God as creator. And that, that usage of that title extends all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. But then, God creates humanity. And the title used in Genesis changes. God's title is changed to Lord God. The covenant name of God is used from Genesis 2 verse 4 all the way to the end of chapter 2. Why? To amplify the fact 
that the Lord is close to his people. He has a personal connection to his people. And so the writer of Genesis ensures that he uses the name, the personal covenant name of the Lord, the name that has been revealed to them in Exodus 3, Yahweh. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bibles is the covenant personal name of the Lord. And the usage of this name throughout chapter 2 broadcasts God's faithful and constant attention to Adam and Eve in giving them all they require and blessing them with joyful delights. It amplifies the Lord's generosity. It amplifies the Lord's goodness. It amplifies the Lord's delight in them. But the serpent comes into the garden. He comes to Eve and immediately sets to the depersonalizing of God in the mind of Eve. And all throughout chapter 2, in reference to God and humanity, it's the personal name of God. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Satan subtly reverts to the title God. Now, there's nothing wrong with using God in reference to God. But the writer of this book is very, very, very specific. The title is less personal than that of his name, Yahweh. Or, as he is referred to over 400 times in the New Testament, Father. You get the personal, the personal nature of the titles used for God throughout Scripture, right? In the New Testament, Father. In the Old Testament, Yahweh. And Satan comes in strategically removing any sort of personalizing of God in order to distance Eve from the love and the care and the goodness of the Lord. Eve, the enemy sought to remove or to cause Eve to question and doubt the goodness and the generosity and the connection of the Lord in her life. And Eve falls for it. She begins to fall for it. And she uses the same language in her response to the serpent's question, replying in Genesis chapter two, 3, verses 2 and 3, saying, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, did you notice what Eve did there? She did two things. She both left words out of what God had said and added words to what God had said. She did not use his exact wording. See, precision is important, right? First, she leaves out one word. But oh, how important this one word is. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But that's not what the Lord had said. Look back at Genesis 2.16. This is what the Lord said. You may surely or freely eat of every tree of the garden. What's the word that's left out? Surely. Freely. Both of these words amplify the generosity of the Lord. The Lord said to them, you can freely enjoy all of the trees in the garden but one. However, Eve is now being led on a path by the serpent. And the first step being, forget the generosity of God. Forget his goodness. Forget his gifts. Forget his care. And as Eve is being led down this road by the serpent, the space was filled with a magnification of God's strictness rather than thankfulness for his generosity. And this is where Eve adds words to what the Lord had said. She said... Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But is that what the Lord said? No, this is what the Lord said in Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So you see that, right? You see that? Eve's rendition, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She added a restriction that has not been given by the Lord. You see, the serpent has been working in her to cast doubt on the goodness of the Lord, and Eve is increasingly buying in 
to the point where she is now magnifying the Lord's, what she sees as restrictions of the Lord that are not actually given by the Lord. And so he responds, Satan responds to the last line of God's word, you will surely die. This is his his final uh, maneuver with Eve. And he said, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, 4, and 5. So you see the, the serpent first denies that God's judgment, God's judgment telling Eve that there really is no penalty for your disobedience. And then secondly says, you will not sure, saying you will not surely die. And instead, he paints obedience to the Lord as some sort of robbery. God doesn't want to give you good food to eat. He doesn't want to provide for you abundantly, freely, and surely. What he wants to do, Eve, is withhold good and joy from you, not give it to you. And Satan has used this tactic with great success among the nations that surrounded Israel in that day all the way to this day where he causes us to believe that God doesn't want to give to us, but God wants to take from us. God wants to rob us of joy, not give us joy. And so then our hearts, rather than being singularly dedicated to and focused on and devoted to the Lord, are flying out to all sorts of different things. Our hearts are divided as we look for joy in all sorts of places other than the Lord who abundantly provides for his children. The nations that surrounded Israel, in fact, in later years, believed that the gods, that their gods actually wanted to prevent humanity from becoming like them. And so they jealously guarded their rights and guarded their status by withholding earthly power and withholding earthly goods and withholding different blessings from the people. Satan has been using this ploy for millennia. And here Satan was working on Eve's heart. I know it's focused on the Lord, Eve. I know your attention is undivided, Eve. But listen, listen to me. There is a whole world out there. And if you don't eat of the fruit of this tree, forget all the the hundreds or thousands or millions of trees that God has given you over here. It's this one. If you don't eat from this one, you won't be able to experience fullness of life. And besides, Eve, shouldn't this be your decision? Why would God keep you from this one tree? Who is he to tell you what to do? Eve, you should be charting your own course. Eve, you should be governing your own life. Eve, you should be living autonomously. Eve, why trust and serve this God who would rob you of this pretty delicious and satisfying fruit. And as a result of the serpent's crafty ploys, Eve looked at the fruit on the forbidden tree and saw, according to Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. At that moment, sin entered into the Lord's good creation and it broke, it fractured and corrupted and ruined everything. It caused a fracture in our relationship with the Lord as our hearts were no longer singularly devoted to Him but looking for other things to fill voids. It caused a fracture in our relationships with one another as the corruption of our hearts causes us to deal deceitfully and slanderously and at times maliciously with one another. It, causes our, it caused our hearts to be fractured from creation as we don't care and concern ourselves with tending to it as we were supposed to do. It has even fractured and broken and corrupted our relationship with ourselves as our once undivided hearts turned corrupt and divided. And instead of singular focus on the Lord, our hearts now turned to, turn to a host of other 
affections. And as you continue through Genesis, Adam and Eve are immediately expelled from the garden, away from the presence of the Lord as a result. And in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, the first murder is recorded. As Cain rose up and murdered his brother Abel. And from that point on, in the book of Genesis, from chapter 4 to chapter 6, we see the human heart descending into ever-increasing evil and wickedness to the degree that the Lord looks down from heaven in Genesis 6 and reveals to us this. Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Scripture's record of our hearts is not a good one. I mean, it's a good one, but our hearts are not good. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Romans 1 describes this descent of the human heart from singular focus on the Lord to suppression of the Lord's truth in favor of the lusts of our hearts, saying that it is corrupt and foolish. He wrote in 121, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he says, he goes on and says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This was a discipline and a punishment from the Lord. What was that punishment? Look at it. To give humanity up to the lusts of its own heart. This is how deceitful, this is how corrupt, this is how ruined our hearts are that the Lord considers it a punishment to give us up to our own hearts. And this is the situation we all find ourselves in. And it wasn't just the Gentiles. Romans 1, Roman 1, is, Romans 1 is about the Gentiles, but it was also those who claimed to love the Lord, who were focused on externals that are mentioned in Romans chapter 2 when the Apostle Paul declared, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that's not only the case for the Jews, but for everybody whose heart is hard and impenitent. But there is good news. I know I've plumbed you down six pages of bad news, but there is good news. Because immediately after the sin of Adam and Eve, immediately after the corruption entered into the human heart, the Lord promised and purposed to deal with our situation, declaring to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, saying this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, the Lord immediately undertook, he promised to fix the situation. He would first maintain a people an offspring of the woman that would battle against the works of the enemy on the earth. And ultimately, he would bring forth the offspring of the woman who would, depending on your translation, bruise or crush the head of the serpent. This offspring, this serpent crusher, has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He has come to deal with and resolve the problem of our hearts. You see, our hearts are like a series of pipes carrying our affection and focus to a number of different spillways. And Christ is the one who undertakes the stopping up of each and every pipe that leads away from the Lord. 
It is Christ who takes on the role of redirecting all of our affections into one channel that leads directly to the Lord and the Lord alone because it is giving all of our affection to the Lord and dedicating our energies to the Lord and focusing on the Lord where we will experience our great delight and our great joy. And so Jesus is for our good when he stops up the pipes of our idolatry and channels that affection back to our Heavenly Father. Because as humans, it is not a matter of if we worship, if we love. It is a matter of what we worship and what we love. We are a worshiping people. And our call and our duty is to love the Lord. This is the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord with all of our hearts. But instead, left on our own, our hearts pursue and worship a number of things. Our hearts are divided and unconcerned with dedication and singular commitment to the Lord. And so, as Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4, he preaches a clear and concise sermon to everyone who would listen, starting in Matthew 4 verse 17, saying, Repent! Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this call to repentance from the lips of Christ was a call to our hearts. It is a call to your heart. It is a call to my heart. It is a call to turn from the sin and idolatry that characterizes our life to a full and undivided devotion to the Lord. And in Matthew chapter 5, Chapters 5 to 7, Jesus went up onto a mountain. He sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to explain what it means to repent. You see, there are those who assume that when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are the meek that he is singling out different groups of people and promising blessings to them Based, uh, uh, based on the fact that they have hardship and difficult situations while they are on earth. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. Instead, Jesus is answering a question that might have arisen among those who heard his sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and wished to obey that call for repentance. The Beatitudes are Jesus' description of the signs that characterize one who has truly repented and one who has come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Here in the Beatitudes, Jesus describes the virtues that are present in those who believe in and respond to his call for repentance. Here in the Beatitudes, we are introduced not to eight separate groups of blessed people, but to one and the same group, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in our text this morning, Jesus delivers the sixth characteristic of the truly repentant follower of Christ, saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now that's a difficult saying, given what we just learned about the state of our heart from the prophet Jeremiah and the corruption of our hearts that came after the fall, isn't it? And when Jesus spoke these words, he spoke them in, to a people in the midst of a religious establishment that was obsessed with external rituals. External rituals that only served to hide an internal stink, internal sin, internal corruption, and unchanged hearts. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were preoccupied with following a whole set of external rules. Following them right down to the minute details so that everyone around them might look at them and say, wow, look at how spiritual those guys are. All the while, their hearts were unchanged. They were still filled with the corruption of the fall. But Christ, who knows and sees the heart, consistently rebuked and lambasted these Pharisees for their hypocrisy, lambasted them for their external deeds and rules that only served to mask and cover their internal rot. 
We see a, a rather scathing rebuke of Christ in Matthew chapter 23 when he says this to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which, appear, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These are two stunning, direct, terrifying rebukes from the lips of Jesus to religious hypocrites. And so many of us can get caught up in the same practice, right? So many of us think that we can clean up our act on the outside, that we can perform enough religious duties to win the favor and the affection of God. But listen, that belief is the centerpiece of all man-made religion. The idea that our good deeds, that our external observance of prescribed rituals somehow, some way, secures God's favor is the centerpiece of human religion. But the truth is, according to Jesus and all throughout Scripture, is that externals are not enough. The externals never secure the favor of God. And this is because the heart is the target. The heart is the target. The pure in heart are characterized by a holiness, a devotion to the Lord that flows out of a heart that is singularly devoted to loving, serving, and honoring the Lord. The pure in heart are those who have been purified not from the outside in, because that's impossible, but from the inside out as a result of a changed, cleansed, and purified heart. The hypocrite is one who thinks that they can purify themselves from the outside in. It simply cannot happen. Our hearts are far too corrupt. We are far too sinful to think that external deeds can secure the righteousness that God requires. And we can and we will see that Jesus continues this theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus will take some of the Ten Commandments... Restrictions that were in, were in their original setting quite easy to follow if you didn't disobey the rule, right? So for example, don't murder. You want to follow the rule? Don't murder. Or uh, don't commit adultery. You want to follow the rule? Don't commit adultery. And so people started to think that they were righteous based on the, the mere lack of murdering and the mere lack of adultery. But Jesus comes and in his Sermon on the Mount, he picks up these commandments and connects them to the human heart. Why? Because again, the heart is the target. Saying, for example, in reference to adultery, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's what you've heard. And for so long, you have thought that if you just simply didn't commit adultery, that God looked down upon you with favor. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. So listen, no one can read your mind. No one can see what's going on in your mind. And while one might not actually go out and break the commandment in Exodus 20 that forbids adultery, that doesn't deal with the larger issue of your heart's corruption, the larger issue of your heart in general, and so can leave us in the position of a Pharisee who obeys the letter of the law 
but is rotting inside and filled with dead people's bones. It can leave us in the position of being whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but inside filled with lust and filled with greed and filled with self-indulgence because our hearts are not pure. Jesus declares, Blessed are the pure in heart. Not blessed are those who put on a good external show or blessed are those who follow all the rules. No, blessed are the pure in heart. So what does that mean? Well, I'm going to start off by just telling you first what it doesn't mean. This is not a blessing pronounced upon the sincere. See, sincerity is, is a value that we, we gets a lot of currency in our culture, doesn't it? We tend to value a person's sincerity in terms of their beliefs. We think, if we think a person is sincere in what they think and what they believe, we're actually more inclined to listen to that person and hear from such people. And many times, we will even defend their genuineness. I've heard Christians defend other religions because people sincerely hold to those beliefs. However, it's not, being pure in heart is not an issue of simple sincerity. Jesus isn't pronouncing simple sincerity here as being blessed because people are, can be, and often are, sincerely wrong. Sincerity, when it is misdirected or in error, is worthless before the Lord. A person can be sincere in their trek to Mecca or sincere in their devotion to following the teachings of Buddha or Confucius or the Pope. They might be sincere in their belief that they are, when we come right down to it, a good person. But sincere devotion that does not accord with or align with God's revealed word, that his, his revealed will, is sincerely wrong and ultimately worthless. But instead, Jesus here declares, blessed are the pure in heart. So if, since, if it's not sincerity, then what does purity mean? Well, in this context, to be pure is to be unmixed, unpolluted, and undefiled. The one who is pure has no joy in deception, takes no joy in double-dealing, takes no joy in being two-faced. The pure are those who labor to ensure that they avoid portraying themselves to those around them one way as wonderfully devoted to the Lord, almost sinless and having it all together, all the while hiding and holding on to sin in the heart and in the darkness. To be pure is to avoid any and all attempts to deceive those around you by acting one way externally while being internally corrupt. Purity has a sense of single-minded dedication and devotion. It's like David prayed in the psalm that we read when we opened up the service. Psalm 86, verse 11 to 12. David said this, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. Unite my heart. Don't let it be divided. Don't let my affections be racing towards multiple things. Bring it together so that it has one purpose, one focus, one goal, which is to glorify your name forever. David's prayer was for a united heart, singularly committed and attentive to the Lord. But the difficulty for David is similar to our own. A large part of our hearts does actually, if you claim to love Jesus, if you're like me, a large part of your heart does want to follow the Lord, right? We want to serve the Lord. We want to know Him. We want to love Him and to please Him. But just like David, like our fellow brothers and sisters, like others, there is also a part of our hearts that wants to follow Love, worship, honor, strive for, and attain things other than, outside of, and even contrary to the Lord. And so our hearts must be purified. 
Now, this doesn't mean that when you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus that you are purified in the sense that you are perfect in terms of your deeds and in your acts, right? Because there is a sense in which the truly uh, repentant person will undergo a long and difficult process of purification, a process whereby the Lord in the person of the Spirit cleanses our hearts of the dirt and the filth and the contamination that is found there. See, the word that is used for pure here in many times uh, was used to describe the refining of metals until all of the impurities of that metal was removed. And in using this word in reference to the heart of the repentant person, it communicates the necessity of pure motives for our words, our deeds, and along with an undivided loyalty and devotion to the Lord that the Lord himself produces as he sanctifies or makes us increasingly holy. Now, what is it that must be pure according to Jesus, right? So purity is what we are striving for, but what is it that must be pure? Look at what Jesus says, the heart the heart. The heart must be pure. What is meant by heart here? In this context, the heart refers to the center of the person. It is the seat of your emotions, the seat of your intellect, the seat of your mind, and the seat of your will. The heart is the engine that moves your mind and moves your will and moves your emotions. The heart here refers to your thoughts and your feelings and your will, meaning that the purity that is called for by Jesus completely changes a person down to the very depths of their person. While the Pharisees taught that it was outward change that was needed, some sort of outward renovation, that outward acts inspired righteousness before the Lord, like tithing of dill and mint and cumin and the meticulous observance of Sabbath laws and the ceremonial washing of hands before eating or the avoidance of sinners and sick people, Jesus rebuked them constantly for being so externally committed without any heart for the Lord. See, it's not enough to look nice on the outside, as all of you do. It's not enough to cry over the right things. It's not enough to fight for the right doctrines. It's not enough to be smart theologically or even do the right things. The one who is right before the Lord is pure in heart, pure in their inner being, pure at the very center of who we are. The heart is the very center of the person. The heart is the place from which we feel and which we think and which we act. And when the heart is pure, everything that flows out of the heart is pure. And sometimes we can find ourselves in the same position as the Pharisees, can't we? Avoiding, bad-mouthing, harshly judging those who don't follow the externals that we think they should follow getting angry, getting upset, getting agitated by them, all the while forgetting the words of Jesus that call for purity in our own hearts. If that's you, hear the words of Christ this morning to you. Blessed are the pure in heart. Are you pure in heart? And we can sometimes find ourselves, again, in the same position of the Pharisees as we focus on ensuring that everybody assents to the proper doctrines and propositions of the faith. Now, that's important, very important. But a lot of times I see yelling and arguing with our neighbors about such things, all the while forgetting to actually love the Lord with our hearts. Forgetting to actually love the neighbor that we're arguing with. Forgetting that our hearts must be pure before the Lord. We must be careful never to distill our faith to a set of externals. The brain alone, rituals alone, emotions alone. But instead recognize that purity of heart leads to right doctrine. Purity of heart leads to right action. Purity of heart leads to proper emotion. And this is what the gospel is focused on. The gospel is, along with the entirety of Scripture, concerned with the heart, with the transformation and renewal of the human heart from its post-fall, divided, sinful state to one of undivided loyalty, love, and focus on the Lord. The gospel is 
committed and concerned with exchanging the stony and dead heart, our stubborn and idolatrous heart, with a heart of flesh that is sensitive and directed towards the wonders of our God. And this transformation takes place as our Heavenly Father redirects our affections toward Himself, as He stops up and blocks up and removes all the channels of idolatrous praise and worship that we, in our sinfulness, have carved out. The Lord focuses the channel of praise springing from our heart entirely in His direction. He does this because there is a problem in our hearts, a problem that rears its ugly head again and again in that We can be and often are satisfied with an external religion, with external rituals that truly do not deal with or address the corruption of our hearts. We must hear the words of Christ here and hear them clearly. We need pure hearts. Because our heart is the source of all the troubles that we see in the world. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19 that it's out of our hearts that evils come. Saying, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And this message has been proclaimed by every God-fearing witness in Scripture. From the prophets to the Lord Jesus himself, our hearts need renewal. The old author, G.K. Chesterton, read an article in uh, a local paper one time, and it was questioning what was going on in the world. Why do we see so much evil? Why do we see so much envy and strife? Why do we see everything going so terribly? What is the problem, was the question asked by the article. And G.K. Chesterton, in his regularly brilliant and witty way, wrote back to the um, author of the article, And his letter consisted of these words in answer to the problem. In answer to the question, what is the problem? He said, dear sir, I am. Dear sir, I am. I am the problem. You are the problem. Your heart is the problem. My heart is the problem. And so our hearts need renewal. And as for the most part, We're unwilling to admit this problem. The problem in our society, in every culture, in every nation, in every people, the problem for the entire world is us, our hearts. And yet we do everything possible to shift the blame to something or someone else. It's my environment that's the problem. It's those people over there that I disagree with that are the problem. No, let me just tell you, the problem is you. The problem is me. The problem is my heart. The problem is your heart. And the solution to this condition is Jesus. Jesus alone. Now, did you see the blessing that is given to the pure in heart? The pure in heart, recognizing the state of their hearts, look to Christ and strive to be like Christ. Christ, who did not sin, neither was there deceit or duplicity found in his mouth. The pure in heart seeks to love God with undivided attention, undivided devotion, because these understand that the Lord is our greatest good and the Lord is our greatest joy. And this purity of heart culminates in the most unbelievably amazing blessing. Look at it. They shall see God. That is the pinnacle blessing. The pure in heart will see God. The pure in heart will be admitted into the presence of God. The pure in heart are the ones who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. The pure in heart will one day see him as he is, this intimate knowledge of and fellowship with the Lord. This greatest and most wonderful of joys is reserved for the pure in heart. They, and only they, will be blessed with this most wonderful of realities. Listen, saints, there is coming a day when we will enter into the presence of the King of Kings. Are you ready? 
Are you ready to enter into the presence of the King of Kings? Are you ready for that day? On that day, everything else will pale in comparison to the awe and the wonderment and the astonishment, the amazement that we will experience from that moment on into eternity. And all that we loved here, all that we held dear, all that we fought about, all that we tried to hide, all that we deceived each other for will be shown to be so absolutely and utterly foolish and inconsequential. And if we only grasped that in the here and now, our lives would be revolutionized. The pure in heart will enjoy the Lord. The pure in heart will spend eternity in His most glorious presence. This is our goal. This is our great joy and delight. And it deserves our efforts at purity in the here and now. Saints, you will one day see the object of your affection face to face. All the longings, all the emptiness, all the loneliness all the tragedies you've experienced, all the persecutions you've undergone while here on earth will either be filled up or eliminated upon this most exquisite, radiant, and lovely sight. Now, if that's the blessing that is given to the pure in heart, one final question needs to be asked. I want that, so how do I get it? First, it's not something that you or I can attain on our own. Because all of our attempts at self-purification are always incomplete and always end in total failure. Because they never get to the root issue, which is the state and sinfulness of our heart. Recognize and realize this morning that your heart is way worse, way more wicked, way more evil than you could have ever imagined and can imagine. Second, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God alone is the only one who can cleanse us and purify our hearts. And he does so as we turn from our sin in repentance and to Christ in faith. And as we do this, God's Holy Spirit accomplishes a task that we cannot. He transforms our hearts. He cleanses our hearts. He purifies our hearts. And this purification results in an ever-increasing lifelong growth in our dedication and pursuit of Christ-likeness as channels are consistently stopped up and those affections are redirected in the direction of our greatest joy. This process of purification is started and completed by the Holy Spirit. And if you believe this morning, I mean if you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are pure. You are the pure in heart, and one day you will see God. And if you do not believe in the Lord this morning, you are not pure, and you will not see the Lord unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not believe right now, your heart is in this state of corruption. And if you would love to see the Lord, you must believe. And while it is ultimately the work of the Spirit in us that cleanses our hearts, we are called to evidence this work of purification in our hearts by striving to put sin to death, by striving to remain unstained by the world, all the while knowing that our efforts will never be enough apart from Christ. Christ is God who took on flesh and made his dwelling among us in order to live the perfect, sinless life that we need, to die the death that we all deserve, bearing the just penalties for our sin upon himself, bearing in himself the wrath of God for our sin. And he did this so that all who believe in him, all who truly believe in him, will be saved and will one day see him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. Father, we thank you and we praise you for giving us the truth of your word. And sometimes it's difficult to hear the truth of your word. It's difficult to hear the diagnosis that your word makes of the human heart. 
because our hearts are deceptive and constantly uh, laboring to trick us into thinking that we're generally good. And so I pray that your spirit would now be convicting us to realize and recognize what our hearts are apart from you. And as we realize that, I pray that for those of us who truly believe in you, that you would amplify our gratitude for the fact that you, in your abundant mercy and in your abundant grace and in your abundant goodness, undertook the renovation of our heart, the renewing of our heart, the transformation of our hearts so that we could stand before you as the pure in heart and look forward in hope to the day when we see you, when we ascend your holy hill and stand in your holy place. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that without him we would be hopeless. And I ask right now that if there are people watching or people here that do not believe, have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, that you would be just pounding at at their souls right now, giving them an unbelievable recognition of their sinfulness before you and a wonderful ability to see the forgiveness that is offered and extended to them at this very moment in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen.